0: last time we were together, we went through verses 1 through 6 of Mark chapter 3. And in verse 6, we read this. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. And we talked last time about the startling nature of this alliance. Two groups that would otherwise be absolutely at odds with one another, sharing vastly different goals in Jewish society, but finding common ground upon this singular issue, which is that Jesus is a problem and that that problem needs to be eliminated. The Pharisees, because he threatened their authority and their influence in their society, and the Herodians, because he was seen among his followers as a king, setting up a kingdom. Of course, the Jews had anticipated that kingdom for generations, and the Herodians were more than happy um, to have Herod as their king, hence being a Herodium. And this is going to become the context within which the interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders will continue. It will be a context of hostility, which we will see over the course of the next several weeks. Not as much today. Today we have a little bit of, uh, of something else going on. So the religious leaders are seeking to discredit, invalidate, and otherwise marginalize Jesus's influence in Galilee and Judea. And this influence was in fact becoming considerable. Which Which we see as we continue in the text. So you're there in Mark chapter 3. Look with me in verses 7 through 12. The Bible says But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him. Because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many insomuch so much that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. So the Bible tells us that Jesus withdrew at this time to the sea. So he's been coming kind of in and out of of Capernaum, particularly other cities around Galilee. And now he's withdrawing to the sea, uh, that being withdrawing from the city in the synagogue, like Capernaum, onto the Sea of Galilee. And by this point, the fame of Jesus Christ had grown considerably. Well, beyond just the region of Galilee, with verses seven and eight telling us that people came from Galilee, from Judea and Jerusalem, from Idumea, from beyond Jordan, and from Tyre and Sidon. And this, in essence, covers all of the different regions around Galilee, with Judea and Samaria being the south portion below Galilee, with Idumea being east of Galilee, with the uh, beyond Jordan being north of Galilee, and Tyre and Sidon being west of of Galilee. So all of the directions on the compass are covered. People are coming from every direction to see and to hear of Jesus. And specifically, verse 8 says, because they had heard what great things he did. And while many, no doubt, had a genuine interest in Jesus as Messiah, hearing that the Messiah had come, that the King had come, there's also little doubt that many were just interested in the spectacle, right? In the happenings, in this thing that was going on in Galilee And this actually became a bit of a problem. Remember, we've been speculating why it might be that Jesus would tell people after he's healed them or after he's cast the devil out of them that they would not tell anyone, but that they would go their way and do their thing, but not tell people. And and now we can see perhaps a little bit of a reason why that might be. The spectacle is becoming overwhelming. Jesus is being thronged. People were rushing up to him to touch him, hoping that by simply touching him, they would be healed. Unclean spirits are falling down at his feet crying, thou art the son of God and Jesus instructing them as we have speculated because he does not want unclean spirits testifying of him. He's, He's telling them to be quiet and not to make him even more known. And in our minds, in my mind, this scene might almost be comical right? People are everywhere. Jesus is trying to get from point A to point B. People are running after him to try to touch him. Demonically possessed people are throwing themselves down at his feet and he's tripping all over them while he's trying to walk because of all of these possessed people laying down at his feet, worshiping him because he is the son of God. He's trotting over people, all whilst Jesus is simply trying to teach the people about the kingdom. Except it isn't really comical at all, is it? Because the people that are trying to touch him are trying to touch him because they're desperate with sickness. Because the demonically possessed are men and women who have been in torment, and they're falling at Jesus' feet because the demons can do nothing else but that when they come in contact with the Son of God. And then, of course, on top of this, Jesus is in the middle of this throng, quite possibly in danger of being trampled. Things are chaotic. And the fact of the matter is, this chaos is not helping Jesus do what he came to do. And to say the least, that would be for Jesus, no doubt, very frustrating. And so Jesus separates himself for a time. We then read in verses 13 through 19. And he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him. And he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and have power to heal sickness and to cast out devils. And Simon he surnamed Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James. And he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. And Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into an house. Jesus goes up into a mountain, and he does this as a means by which to separate himself from the the throng. There the Bible says he ordains twelve men who would become his closest disciples, and eleven of whom, with the notable exception of Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him would form the foundation of the apostles after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in verse 14 that he ordained these 12 for the purpose that he might send them forth to preach, giving them power to heal sickness, giving them power to cast out devils. And in this way, they were given the same commission which he had to preach the kingdom. We, we've seen that from the beginning, that Jesus' focus is, is that he would be preaching the gospel, that he would be teaching the people. He goes into the synagogues and he teaches. He has focused on the need to teach. We've seen that, that all of the miracles that he is doing is simply to validate the teaching ministry uh, to prove the authority that he has so that his words carry all of that authority with him as they go forth into the ears of the hearers. And here we see the names listed of these 12. Simon Peter, Matthew, James of Zebedee, John of Zebedee, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, James of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot. A few things of note among the 12. I'm not going to get into the history of all of them this evening, but there are a few uh, things of note because it can get a bit confusing from gospel to gospel. Simon and Andrew are brothers, and they are the son of Jonas. James and John are brothers, the sons of Zebedee, being called by Jesus Boanerges. This is an Aramaic word meaning, according to Mark, sons of thunder. Although the one time that the the second half of that root, regaz, is used in our Hebrew Old Testament, it's translated rage. Rage. And so we might uh, only be able to infer what it was about either their viewpoints or their perspective or their character that caused Jesus to call them this thing. Uh, We will look in a little bit um, and and, and see if maybe we we can figure out why it is he called them that. So those are James and John. Another man of note, the last one that I really want to key in on, is Simon the Canaanite. He's alternatively called in Luke chapter six verse fifteen Simon Zelotes or Simon the Zealot, and though it's it's somewhat debated, it seems as though this Simon the Zealot is most likely the Nathaniel of John chapter uh, of, of the early chapters of John. We don't see Nathaniel on this list, but we recognize that Nathaniel was one who Philip went and um, uh, spoke to. And um, we believe that Nathaniel is the same as Simon. If that is the case, that Nathaniel is Simon the Canaanite, uh, it's quite possible that Philip was his brother. And it, it's quite possible then that they were both, in fact, zealots. Uh, the idea of being a zealot uh, refers to a political sect of men at the time called the zealots. We use that term today of a zealot to speak of one usually in the political realm, but one who is extremely passionate about their cause. And that idea came from this idea of the zealots. They were a political group that vehemently, sometimes even violently, refused Roman occupation or Roman rule over the region. They became particularly well-known during the time of taxation, which would have been um, in those years. We know that that when Mary and Joseph went um, to be taxed, uh, we recognize that that was the time of the census in order that the taxation could then come. So it would have been in the years after Mary and Joseph went to, to be la- uh, named in that census uh, when they, the, the, the nation of Israel had been taxed. And there was a tremendous revolt in that day against that tax led by a man named Judas of Galilee. They refused the Roman taxation and those that would do so and those that were very hostile in doing so were called the Zealots. History tells us that they were willing to resort to violence, that they would even uh, resort to assassinations or assassination attempts in the accomplishment of their political goals. And this is likely the idea of him being called a Canaanite as well. Uh, The idea of him being a Canaanite Canaanite does not in any way we would believe infer that he was actually not Jewish, but rather the idea being that by calling himself a Canaanite, he was not associating himself even with the Roman uh, rule over the land, but but effectively we might say it this way, he would say, I'm... I, I, I and my people have been in this land well before Rome, well before Greece, well before any of these occupying powers, well before Babylon. This is ours. We are we are the original occupiers of this land. We are the Canaanites. We're not, we're not um, uh, Romans. We are Canaanites. And that's the idea behind, potentially behind him being called by that name. A man who refused as zealots did any willingness to submit to Rome highlighting their historic connection to the land and the extent to which they considered Rome to be usurpers, and so without any legal right to impose tax or to rule over them. And the Bible says that following Jesus' calling and empowering of these twelve men on the mount, they then went into a an house. And so we imagine it, Jesus went out of probably Capernaum, He went by the seashore. He commissioned a boat in case he was thronged. The people were were thronging. He ended up on a mountain where he commissioned the 12 and he gave them the power that he has in order to heal sickness and cast out demons. And then he came back out off of that mountain and he went into a house. Presumably, again, we might imagine that that would have been around the area of or or in Capernaum. So we continue, verses 20 and 21. And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. We see a very interesting picture painted here. Think through the scene as we have already read it, right? Jesus is thronged. People are grabbing him. He's tripping over people. They have to get into a boat to avoid being completely overwhelmed. Then he's at the mountain. He gets a little bit of a break there. He commissions the 12. They come back. The multitude is there again. People are trying to touch him again. Uh, Demonically possessed people are throwing themselves at his feet again. So much so, verse 20 says, that they could not so much as eat bread. Now, it seems likely at this point in that eating bread is connected to this, this statement, he is beside himself, it seems likely at this point that it has been a while since Jesus had eaten anything. We don't know the timetable in Mark. Uh, Mark, things happen so quickly. Uh, it's hard to know the timetable, but we might imagine that, that much of this is happening um, contiguously. One thing after another is Jesus is trying to minister to all of these people and he's so popular. And he has not been able to eat anything. So much so, the Bible says in verse 20, that they could not so much as eat bread. And verse 21 tells us that his friends heard this and they went out to lay hold on him. So as they're possibly heading to the house and maybe his friends went ahead of him to prepare the house and as he's coming, they, they go and they lay hold on him and they say... He is beside himself. That's an interesting word here in our text, translated often in our New Testament as amazed or astonished. We would use the term today perhaps out of one's mind, thrown into a state of wonder or into a state of amazement. We might believe this, as it applies to Jesus here, would speak of a sort of delirium. Maybe it's induced simply by the busyness, uh, in that it seems connected to the idea that they could not eat bread. It's possible that this was a, 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 a delirium because he was just so hungry, because he had not been nourished in so long. And through this, we are reminded that Jesus is, in fact, very human. And he, like any other man, could not push his body further than it was able to be pushed. His ministry was just as dependent upon his physical health as yours or mine would be. And to the degree that he neglected the needs of his body, to that same degree, he was put into a place of relative ineffectiveness. It's one of the things that I've had to learn as a minister from time to time, that if I neglect my body, it's one of the reasons why having a wife is so important, that if I neglect my body, it puts me into a state of relative ineffectiveness of ministry. I cannot do the things that I need to do if I'm not well in body and in mind. Jesus, it would seem, was in a state where he had, uh, was faltering at least in mind if not in body by virtue of this interesting word that's used to describe him, whether that be because of a malnourishment of sorts or simply the overstimulus of everything that is going on. We are also reminded not only of Jesus' humanity and the the struggle that he would have had there, but we are also reminded that Jesus, like all men and like all ministers, needed someone to help him, to give him perspective, to care for him. He needed friends. That's what it says here, right? That, that, That they had thronged him so much that they could not so much as eat bread. And then when his friends heard of it, They went out and they grabbed him and they said, he's beside himself. We need to get this guy to where he can eat something and to where he can get some rest. Jesus did not float around earth above the fray, Christian. He was sinless, never separated from God. He had wisdom and power consistent with his position and authority as the Son of God. But he needed food He needed rest. He needed friends. He needed men to watch out for him. He needed a support system, just like any man does. So that we are reminding ourselves, as we see Jesus' situation here, just how important it is that we have friends. Just how important it is that we have a community of people who care about us. You know, we live in a time where people are perhaps more in communication than any other time in history. We have these phones in our pockets that are digging all the time and uh, texts are flying back and forth from person to person. And yet, though we are in more communication than any time in history uh, through the advent of this terrible thing called social media, yet we are also more isolated than we've ever been. This was not helped by our society's very backward and uh, upside-down response to COVID so that today there is very little by way of community left in our society. And this is a fundamentally unsustainable position for humanity. Humans need friends. Humans need support. Humans need community. And it's for this reason, among others, that we are exhorted in in Hebrews chapter ten, verse twenty-five, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Christians have long been incubated in the United States of America from the worst elements of persecution, and we've even been able to be relatively well incubated, should we choose to do so, from the general influence of the pagan culture that is around us. This is changing, however, and changing quite quickly. And as the day of Christ's return draws nigh, we find ourselves in an increasingly uh, difficult to avoid cultural rot. Even an increase in persecution as uh, Christians are, are blamed for the various problems that are happening around the country. It is more evident than it has been in perhaps quite some time just how important it is that we have a community, that we have friends, that there are people who love us, who are around us as a support system, people who can counsel us, people who perhaps even can protect us as much from ourselves at times as others. Don't discount the need for friends, Christian. Now when I talk to my children about friends, of course it comes with the warnings that you need to choose good friends. I uh, have written that letter to many a young person as they are transitioning out of uh, high school and out of perhaps their parents' um, uh, authority or, or, or into a, uh, whether it be a, a post-secondary uh, scenario or whether it be just wor- getting out more so into the, the uh, workforce and into the world around us. One of the warnings that I always give is about the friends that these young people are going to choose. I tell them that their friends will dictate much about the way that their life is directed. And indeed, I've seen it to be the case on many occasions. The people whom you choose to be your friends will have a huge impact on the person that you will become. And there's no real way around that. But there is a particular exhortation in the scriptures about friends, beyond just choosing good friends, that is very important. I get up here today and I say it's important to have friends. And it is important to choose good friends, and I think implicitly many of us understand that to be true. But the question that arises is this, okay, it's important to have friends, well, how do I get friends? And that's the question that Proverbs 18, verse 24 addresses. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. And there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. It's important to have friends, Christian. And if you want to have friends, the best way to get them is to be a good friend. Don't expect to be a bad friend. Don't expect to not care about others. And then have them care about you. There's a lot of that going around today. People that are are living with blinders on, whereby they see only what's in front of them, only what is about them. And yet they ask for friends. Friends. Don't expect, Christian, to ignore others' needs and then have others invest in your needs. Don't expect people to keep reaching out to you if you never reach back. And don't be surprised if you aren't willing to put in any time, any effort, any care, or any investment in others into being friendly... Don't be surprised that you find you don't actually have any friends of your own. Now, we all have people in our lives that we must disproportionately reach out unto. People who have a tendency to take but really don't give anything back. And you do that because you are being a friend to them, but they aren't necessarily friends to you. They are to you a ministry. You are being a friend to them they give nothing back to you, but you persist as a form of ministry. Someone who you are engaged with in order that you might specifically bless them or help them to keep them going, but who honestly gives nothing back. Sponges seemingly capable of always soaking, of perpetually soaking, but never pouring back into you. You will always have those people in your life, Christian. And it is, in fact, right that you will. For this is a very valid avenue of selfless ministry, and if you are one who sees your opportunities to minister to others, then you will always have those people in your life who you are giving to, but who do not give back to you, helping those who need it, lifting those who perhaps cannot lift themselves, and of showing the love of Christ to those who are in true need of that love in a disproportionate manner, so that you are giving, though not also receiving, and those are, are always going to be there, and that right and that's good, that is ministry, that is the call, and if you find yourself having many such people in your life, I encourage you specifically that while you regard them and you you invest in them, I'm not saying get rid of them, but those aren't your friends. I'm not saying they're not friendly people. What I'm saying is, as far as what I'm talking about this evening, when I say you need friends, those are not the people I'm talking about. Those are your ministry. Those are the people you are pouring into but that are not giving back. When I say you need friends, I'm talking about this idea in Proverbs eighteen twenty four. You are friendly to someone who is also showing themselves friendly, that you are pouring into them and they are pouring back, that there is a mutual moving together, working together in the same direction unto a, unto a similar end. Make sure that you have not just a circle of ministries around you, but make sure that you have friends. That you have people who are interested in you, who invest in you, who care about you, who will help you. Even our Savior, who is that friend that Proverbs 18 speaks of who sticks closer than a brother. On this day in Mark needed friends. He was thronged by people so much so that they could not he could not even eat and when his friends heard it they stepped out they went to him they lay hold on him for they said he is beside himself. They recognized that Jesus had a need that he was physically whether that be delirious or exhausted or whatever it might be that he was not in a good place and his friends heard it they identified it they went out and they helped their friend so we read well in ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 9 through 12 two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor for if they fall the one will lift up his fellow But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Two are better than one, Christian. Now this is often connected to marriage. You'll often hear a preacher preach this uh, at a wedding and that's a fine application to the idea of two is better than one. I hope, Christian, that if you uh, have a spouse that you and your spouse are true friends to one another. It ought to be so. But this idea in Ecclesiastes 4 is not just a marriage concept. This is a friend concept. Do you have people in your life, Christian, to exhort you? to uphold you, to encourage you, to support you, to rebuke you, to warn you, to hold you accountable, to strengthen you in the day of your weakness. And if you do not, you need to find them. You need to find them, Christian. Take it from a man who struggles with this himself. You need friends. It begins, however, with this idea that we saw in in Proverbs 18. It begins with showing yourself friendly. It ends with being ministered unto in important and needful ways by those who are pouring into you as you also are pouring into them. And once again, there's no better place to find these than the church. For indeed, the very essence of the church's purpose involves this thing. We're going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks as well, as we think on the church all the more. But we read in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 16, Let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, Patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints. Give it to hospitality. What did I do here? There we are. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. And weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceit. This is friendship, Christian. As the church lives out this call, that our love would be without hypocrisy, without dissimulation, that we would abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good, that we would be kindly affectioned one to another in this idea of brotherly love, that we would in honor prefer one another, that we set those that are in the body above the other priorities that are around us, because because we ought, because we are friends, because that is what we do, that we're not slothful in business, but that we're fervent in spirit, that we f- serve the Lord together, that we rejoice in that hope, that we are patient together in that tribulation, that we continue together in prayer, that we distribute to the necessity one of another so that when one has a need, we distribute to them with the, with the understanding that on the, on the day that we have the need, they will distribute to us, that we are given to hospitality to meet the needs of one another, to host one another, to spend time one with another, that we would bless even them that persecute us, that we would rejoice when our brothers and sisters rejoice, that we would weep when our brothers and sisters weep, that we would be of that same mind, that we would maintain a unitedness, not, a, not that we are clones of one another, that, not that we cannot disagree, but that we are in the same mind one toward another, which means I am as much for you as you are for me. And that we would not allow the petty things to get between us. The church is called to be an assembly of friends. This does not mean that everyone has to look the same, sound the same, or even think the same. I mean, I told you we'd come back to those brothers, right? Boanerges, the sons of thunder. They must have been kind of interesting to be around. There's this account in Luke 9. Jesus enters into a village of Samaritans. And as they go into this village, the Bible says that this village of Samaritans refused to receive Jesus. And the reason why they refused to receive Jesus was because his intent was to go to Jerusalem. So they said, well, if you're going to that place, we want nothing to do with you because we don't like that place because we don't like the people that live there, right? All of the the bigotry and such that was between Samaritans and Jews between their their worship at Mount Gerizim and the Jews' worship in Jerusalem. And they said, we want nothing to do with you, and they refused to receive him. And these sons of thunder said in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? So James and John, when they see that the Samaritans rejected Jesus, were ready to call down the flames of heaven to burn these guys up. To which Jesus had to reply, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And he went to another village. (laughs) He says, Nope, let's not burn them up, let's just go to another village, right? Jesus had to rebuke his friends on that day, because their spirit was at odds with his spirit in this matter. They were ready to call down fire from heaven. Jesus came not to destroy men's lives, but to save men's lives. There was a disagreement of outlook and maybe in a sense of zeal on that day. Now, if you were Jesus and you were calling the 12 people who would connect to you for the next several years of your life and whom you would minister to and through, maybe you wouldn't look for someone that is uh, like them. But Jesus did. And on top of that then, so we have these these sons of thunder who uh, have a, a, a tremendous zeal and we use that word zeal and we're not even yet talking about the zealot that's in his midst. Jesus also had one of those, remember, if not two of those. If Simon was the brother of Philip, maybe two of those zealots in his midst. So these are guys who by reputation at least, of course we don't know, we don't have a whole lot of insight into Simon directly, but if, if he was a zealot, and if he was a zealot by conviction, then this guy was not interested in paying taxes to Rome. And yet it was our Savior who would say in Mark chapter 12, verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus didn't agree with the 12 disciples on everything. Now, of course, in Jesus' In the relationship with Jesus, only, only one side's never going to be wrong, right? We, we, we don't have that, that, um, that same luxury. We may think we have that luxury in our, our own friendships that we're never wrong and they're always the ones that are wrong. But we don't have that luxury in our, our relationships, right? In our relationships, both sides are going to be wrong sometime. But one of the amazing things about the 12 disciples that have followed Jesus throughout is that these men did not have to exact, they were not clones of Jesus, He didn't find the people that were most like him in personality and character. He found a couple of guys that were ready to burn everyone up. He found one dude that sure didn't like Rome enough that he was not interested in paying taxes. Even though he was going to go before these these Sanhedrin and these these, uh, Pharisees and say, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he didn't kick Simon out. Even though he was not there to destroy, but he was there to save, he didn't get rid of James and John. They were still his friends. Even though they were different from him, these men were not perfect men. These men had growing to do. They didn't agree on everything, but these men were his friends. And they didn't have to agree on everything to be friends. We in the church will not always agree, we will not always see eye to eye. We will have different perspectives. We will have different standards. We will have different experiences. We will have different struggles. We will have different fears. But not only does this not mean we can't be friends, pardon the double negative, but this is exactly what I want in my friends. This is exactly what I need in my friends. Friends who love me and care for me yet see things differently, yet have different skills, different abilities, different perspectives, different experiences. Because then my friends can make up the difference where I lack. So that I have people who I love and who I trust in my sphere of influence, but who have different experiences who can make up the difference in a manner that will not uh, be to my detriment. And then I can do the same for them. Because going Way back to Paul's teaching in Romans 12, we are one body, but we are also many members. And if we're all the same member, then the body is useless. If I am made up of all eyes, and I have no mouth, and I have no ears, and I have no elbows, and I have no knees, and I have no toes, everything is an eyeball my body is not going to work very well. The eyeball is very good at what it does. It is not good. It's not going to make a good joint. It's not going to make a good mouth. It's not going to make a good nose. It is going to be functionally incapable of doing those things. It's also not good if my eyes and my nose and my ears and my mouth are not all friends. If they're not willing to work together to do the thing that the body needs to do, It's not going to be good for me. But when everything is working together, acknowledging its purpose with a singular vision, a singular goal, a singular connection between them all that puts them all in the same direction, though they are very different one from another, and though they will not understand one another, that is when the body works. And if we aren't friends, this body of Christ will not be very useful so Paul would say in Romans chapter 12 verses 4 through 8, for as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. All of these parts working in harmony. There's some things that I'm good at. There's some things I'm not good at. If you're good at the thing I'm not good at and we're in the same church and we are friends, I don't have to be good at that thing because you're good at that thing. You can let me do what I do well. I can let you do what you do well. And in you doing what you do well and I'm doing what I do well, the body is served better. Everything gets done. Everything is accomplished. Everything happens as it ought to happen because you're doing your part and I'm doing my part. And because we're friends, so you're serving me, and I'm serving you, and we're doing our parts. Paul would then specify in First Corinthians twelve, verses twelve through twenty, for as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body. So also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. So we we began by saying, choose good friends. Well, if we all are by one Spirit baptized into one body, then that's the pool of your friends. Those who, are, who have accepted Christ as their Savior, those who are walking in the Spirit, those who love the Lord, those who love God's Word, that's the pool I pull from. In the church... We, we, we come together for that, that, that purpose. Not everyone, not everyone that steps into a church on a Sunday is, is of the body. Not everyone who steps into a church on a Sunday is walking in accordance with, with the Spirit of God. But the, the, the pool we pull from is that pool of those who are believers who are walking with Christ. So he says, For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we, we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him? And if there were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. So I ask a couple of questions this evening as we close. Are you a friend? Are you one who has shown yourself friendly? Do you have friends? Do you have those in your life who, not just ministries, not just those that you are pouring yourself into, and not um, Not just a source, right? Not just someone who you're allowing to only one way exclusively pour into you. Do you have a mutual... Friendship, whereby you are pouring into someone as someone is pouring into you. Do you have friends or only ministries? Do you have friends or are you the sponge? Do you have friends or are you determined that you're simply going to go it alone? In Mark chapter 3, Jesus had friends. Those friends saw him on a day of need, and they said he is beside himself, and they went and they took hold of him on that day of need. You need friends, Christian. Is this church what it ought to be as a group of friends? Are we an assembly of friends? Are we willing to allow the spiritual diversity necessary to be a functioning and effective body of friends? Jesus is the Son of God with all authority and power. But on this day in Mark, Jesus first chose those who would be his friends, and all the more so on this day in Mark. Jesus needed those whom he had chosen to be his friends. May we be good friends one to another this evening. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.